Hello, everyone, and welcome. Like many of you in the chat, I'm very excited for this discussion between Bernardo Castrop and Graham Oppie, um, two people who, you know, very intelligent, and I don't think that they've talked before, but they're, they're very, you know, Graham's very influential in the kind of theism and atheism space. Bernardo's very influential in the kind of idealism and physicalism space, you know, in terms of doing these sorts of interviews and conversations online. So like many people, I'm interested to see, you know, where, where the disagreement is going to be between the two of them and what, what they have to say to each other today. Um, so I have build this conversation as physicalism versus idealism but i and the reason that i've done that is because i know graham identifies his own position as naturalism and bernardo considers his own position to be naturalism as well so it, it almost it wouldn't be appropriate to say naturalism versus physicalism in that sense so um i'm wondering graham if you want to just first talk about you know what your position is and how you would distinguish it from idealism and then bernardo if you want to you know talk about whether you agree with that and what idealism is so so we know what we're talking about in the first place um okay so first of all on the 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 label the naturalism versus physicalism i think of my view as supposing that there's a natural reality uh, which is um constituted out of natural stuff uh the natural stuff includes i mean the, the natural the category includes the physical but i think that it includes more it includes the chemical biological um the psychological and so on the foundation for the view is going to be where where i think um the sources of knowledge are is across all of the sciences um including the social sciences and the humanities. So I don't think that there's anything like a reduction to physics that you could describe all of reality in the terms of physics. That's why I don't want to call myself a physicalist. Um, so but, maybe but what would be the key, the, the, you know, what would be the key difference in terms of how you're understanding idealism between your view and like an idealist position then? Okay, so for idealists, the way that I understand idealism, what's fundamental is minds and ideas. So that's what lies at the basis of reality. Whereas according to me, um, minds and ideas are late and local in the history of natural reality. Um, reality itself is, I mean, we, I can use, I'll say, say material, but that's um, how you might've described this kind of view say in the 17th or 18th century, it's not exactly right, given our current understanding about um, the sort of fundamentals of physics, but that will do. So do you want to come in on that, Bernardo? You know, how would you characterize your own position and what do you think of, you know, Graham's characterizations there? Well, to me, naturalism, and to most philosophers I know, naturalism is the notion that what exists is natural. So we are only excluding supernaturalism which basically doesn't exclude any serious person or position engaged uh, in this debate. So for me, naturalism is um, it's the idea that nature unfolds spontaneously according to the patterns and regularities we call the laws of physics, and that there isn't a anthropomorphic entity that interferes in the, in the normal, ordinary unfolding of nature on a whim in a deliberate way that nature unfolds 
spontaneously according to its own patterns or and regularities so from this perspective i'm absolutely a naturalist i'm not a supernaturalist uh, at all um to me the difference between what we might call um, mainstream physicalism and analytic idealism there are many forms of physicalism some of which don't really deserve the term physicalism because they have become so abstract that there is nothing physical left in the reduction base um, so mainstream physicalism uh, is the notion that um, at the bottom level of reality there are physical entities be them uh, elementary subatomic particles or abstract fields and that mind somehow emerges out of particular arrangements of physical entities as a byproduct thereof um, analytic idealism states that uh, at the bottom level of reality there is a field of subjectivity of simple subjectivity uh, and excitations of this field are what we call experiences and that's the bottom level of reality uh, what we colloquially call the material world which the idealist will not deny uh, but for the idealist uh, the material world is what transpersonal mental processes look like when observed from our perspective or technically when observed from across a dissociative boundary so the physical is an appearance uh, an image uh, it is not the thing in itself the physical does not have standalone reality it's the way something else which does have standalone reality look like from our perspective that's the difference now uh, the commonalities is that both analytic idealism and physicalism acknowledge that there is an external world outside our individual minds a world that is objective from our perspective and does what it does regardless of whether we like it or not whether we fantasize that it be different or not that's a common point another common point is that both analytic idealism and physicalism acknowledge that the qualities on the screen of perception are representations they are not the world as it is in itself they are our own cognitive representations thereof that's the, the these are the main two points of commonality i think um, i am not ready to give up on the word um, naturalism as a synonym to physicalism i don't think this makes any sense it's gratuitously misleading i think it's a rhetorical uh, move because it allows professor oppie to basically classify everything that isn't physicalism as supernatural with all the wrong evocations that this word uh, uh, brings to the table so i'm not going to surrender the view that uh, idealism is a naturalist approach naturalism is a scientific outlook physicalism is a metaphysical position regarding the philosophy of mind these two things are certainly not equivalent now i don't i, I don't want to guide the conversation too much if there's something you immediately want to come back on there graham that you think would be useful but otherwise i i can um so and there are a few things in that characterization that i disagree with uh so one thing that I would dispute is the, but maybe again, this will turn out to be terminological, is that um, consciousness or um, the mental more broadly is emergent. So I'm an identity theorist. I think that conscious states and mental states more generally just are certain kinds of, I mean, states or processes 
just are certain kinds of neural states or processes, and that's not appropriately called an emergentist view. Right? Identity theory is something different. That's uh, fair enough. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, the second thing, uh, I distinguished between the kind of physicalist view and the naturalist view in terms of the vocabulary that you need to describe what's fundamental. And um, what I think is fundamental in, in your theory is everything that doesn't get um, explicitly defined in other terms. Now, I don't think, for example, that you can give a definition of, say, cat in the vocabulary of fundamental physics. I think this is a matter of principle. So uh, the idea that um, that you can do that strikes me as an extreme view, but that's a view that often gets called physicalism. And the reason why I wanted to, why I want to call my view naturalism is to distinguish it from that kind of view. Now I agree that um, the word. The word natural is a very interesting word. It has many, many different kinds of meanings, mostly um, when you think about the contrast between the natural and the unnatural or the non-natural. Natural turns out to be positive. And so I'm quite happy to accept that there's a sense in which um, people quite generally want to be able to call themselves naturalists because, of, after all, the alternative being sort of an unnaturalist or a non-naturalist or something like that doesn't sound good. Uh, it would perhaps be better to have some neutral vocabulary here, but in the circles where I'm having discussions um, most of the time, that is with theists, the contrast between theism and naturalism doesn't evoke the same kind of controversy that the contrast between naturalism and idealism, supposing that we're using the terms that way, does. So. Um, I guess we're kind of stuck with, we come from different places where um, the label naturalism kind of serves kind of different roles. Can I ask a question? Not a rhetoric question, it's an it's a honest, uh, sincere question. Uh, um, Professor Op, you said um, you're an identity theorist. So for you, it's not like qualia or experience somehow emerges out of physical arrangements. It's that experience is physical arrangements. At the same time, you said we can't reduce a cat to physical properties alone. Uh, these two things seem sound contradictory to me. How, how do you reconcile these two statements? So I don't, I actually don't see what the, what the problem is, right? So um, for something to be having experiences, so we'll think of experiences as kind of processes, um, say, say it's a human being, for them to be having experiences is just for them to be d doing certain kinds of neural processing embedded in a physical environment in the right kind of way. Likewise, for cats, their experiences will be for them to have the kind of cat neural processes going on embedded in a physical environment in the right kind of way. Maybe there's some other sort of stuff that you have to talk about evolutionary history and so on, but that's but that's just what having experiences is. Uh, there's no um, idea that you can uh, 
with with this identification, it's a theoretical identification. It's not eliminating either half, right? So it's not saying really there's just um, neural states and there's no mental states. And it's not, on the other hand, saying really there's just mental states and there's no neural states. It's saying the two things are one. That's that's what the identity theory says. This is the view that um, Jack Smart um, introduced in his I think, 1963 paper, um, whatever it was called, <laughs> identity and brain processes or whatever it was called. And I think that Smart um, was just right. If, uh, if I say consciousness is the involuntary wiggling of my left big toe, this is something I can articulate in grammar, in English, it's a well-formed statement, it has a meaning. Consciousness is the involuntary wiggling of my left big toe. That, that's all there is. It's a physical account of consciousness. But presumably, well, it's hardly an account of consciousness, right? It's something that nobody would think was a serious contender. So what is the difference between what I just said and the statement that the neuronal firings are experiences in all the qualitative nuance and subtleties of experience, which are not deducible, even in principle, from any physical property of neuronal firings? What, what's the difference? Sure. Why is your no, statement not, less arbitrary deducible. than the, the big toe statement? So, sure, it's not deducible in principle, but as I said before, the existence of cats is not deducible in principle from the vocabulary of physics either. And that doesn't count in any way against the existence of cats, right? So there's no there's no idea that you can figure this out a priori. It's an a posteriori theory, an inference to the best explanation. So a cat is physical, but is not physical. That's no, what that's I'm hearing. What I, no, that's not what I said. Um, the, so a cat has a purely physical constitution, but you cannot define what a cat is in the language of physics. Take the language of fundamental physics, say particle physics, and try to define what a cat is. Even in principle, you can't do it. So what, what is missing from, from what can be defined according to the language so, of particle physics? So the, what is the, left out? <laughs> the concept of a cat, right? There's, so if you think about the, reality... The, the cat doesn't right. have the concept of the cat. The cat just is. The cat doesn't conceptualize catness. So from a point of view of the cat, if you have given a complete physical account of a cat, what is missing then? Um, you can't give a complete account of a cat in the language of fundamental physics. Why not? Right? In principle, if I'm a physicalist, I could say, of course, I can describe the spin, charge, mass, momentum, and geometrical position of every single subatomic particle, elementary particle in the body of a cat, what, what is left out? So, so that wouldn't characterize cats, right? Why not? Right. You, what is there to a cat more than what I just said? Well, every cat's different. Well, every cat right? has you a different configuration what, what of elementary particles. Not, what, what, what you just did, even if you could do it, and it's something else that you can't do, not even in principle, because there's too much information for you to be able to store that information in order to give the characterization. Right? We have a discussion in of principle. principle. It's not in principle. That, that's that's no, what but, I mean. But but what what's this in principle? In principle, better be possible, right? And according to me, there's no such possible world, right? It's not. We're not talking about possibilities anymore. 
but it sounds to me like you, you want to eat the cake and have it too. You are saying, well, experience is just physical stuff because you are uh, an identity theorist. You think there is nothing to qualia but the neuronal substrate uh, of, of the nervous system. But at the same time, you're saying, well, I can't reduce the cat to the, to the neuronal substrate of the nervous system because something is left out. And you justify that by appealing to something that is in practice still impossible. But there is no reason to say that it is in principle also impossible to give a full physicalist account of the cat. So uh, I don't know where you are. Do you believe in qualia? Do you not? Are you a physicalist? Are you not? What does identity mean? Why is it different from the left big toe theory of consciousness that I shared earlier? <laughs> so it depends what you mean by qualia, right? I mean, this is another thing from the literature that you'll be familiar every, with. Because some every people person knows define qualia in a way that make them inconsistent with um, physicalism or... Quality um, is experience, it's the redness stuff. of an apple, the, 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 right. the bitterness of disappointment, that's qualia, is what we feel. So, so, for example, you look at a tomato and you see that it's red, right? So you have this perception of a red tomato. Your perceiving the red tomato is just a matter of there being certain processing that's going on in you that's connected to the tomato in the right kind of way. So there's photons coming from the surface of the tomato scattering into your eye, and then there's processing. That's the, although you can, there's there's nothing else that's going on. So that's what is happening that's, that when begs you're the question. experiencing the tomato. Now, you're begging the question. talk again. about the qualities of your experience, um, and there's a kind of vote vocabulary for doing that. But what you're going to talk about actually is the properties <laughs> of the tomato. This is the kind of thing that only philosophers do, that no normal educated person falls into this kind of semantic argument. Qualia experience is where it all starts. It's what we have before we start conceptualizing and theorizing and coming up with all kinds of narratives to deceive ourselves. Everybody knows what qualia is. It's the only thing that we can know for sure exists. Uh, it is the only given of nature. Um, if your account of perceiving redness, if you say, well, perceiving redness is only what happens in the nervous system, there is a very strong sense, an obvious sense, in which this begs the question. It, it assumes the point in contention. The point in contention is precisely whether there is only nervous system processing as the causal force behind qualia or whether perhaps the neural system processing is what qualia look like from a perspective in which case it would be entirely correlated with the happenings in the neural system uh, just as it empirically is so uh, it is unclear for me still where you actually stand. It still sounds to me like you want to eat the cake and have it too. You know, but a cat, it doesn't have really qualia because it's identical to the physical stuff, but you cannot have even in principle a physical, physical account of the cat. So I don't understand. I will leave it to Nathan. I will not insist on this. Well, um, I think, I think there might be... Pursuing it, right? So, I mean, what... You seem to run two different things together there. One was the status of the cat and the other was the status of the cat's qualia, right? So um, right. And before we were talking about the cat, we weren't talking about the cat's qualia. Cats have mental states. Perhaps we can't know exactly what it's like to be in the kind of states that the cat's in because we can't be in those states. We're not cats, right? But that that seems 
irrelevant to the points that I've been making. I think there was maybe maybe a first point of confusion about um, defining the term cat, at least as I, as I understood it, it was sort of the, this idea that, you know, whatever the mean, the meaning of this natural kind term cat is, can't be reduced to like, in terms of like theory reduction or something, you know, this higher level kind cat can't be reduced in theory. But I think that there was maybe a confusion between theory reduction and like ontological reduction, right, that that sort of went on. And I think that that led to a, a little bit of confusion. I don't know if that is helpful at all in terms of progressing. Right. So, so what I said was a point about theory reduction. Um, but the so is is there um, more to the constitution of the cat at very high energy levels, very low kind of spatial grain of resolution than a bunch of um, physical particles answer no but that's not in any sense a reduction cats are real in the same way that the physical particles are right you can i mean if we think looking for a relationship here we might think of supervenience as the relation so the you know the properties of the cat supervene on the physical properties but that's not a reductive relation according to me it doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's not my responsibility to clarify your position, what exactly you mean by dancing around the concepts like this. So I'll leave it at this. Um, um, I, I can well, very clearly specify what my position is and, and, and give an account for it without unbelief. Okay, so, so, so let's go back to your position then. Because mm -hmm. um, we, we might as well, we might as well focus on that for a bit. No, I'm, I'm happy. Um, I'm happy to focus so, entirely on my right, position right. and the only so, defense. Yeah. So, <laughs> so according to you, at the fundamental level, there is what exactly? There is just a field of subjectivity. In other words, what philosophers would call phenomenal consciousness. And that's the basic level of nature. Everything can be reduced to specific patterns of excitation of that. So is that a single thing or many things? No, that's a th single thing. Uh, it's, the it's variety a of thing. Yeah. yeah, the variety of nature is given by then the different patterns uh, in which that thing can be excited, and which is an, an idea very popular in physics on how you come from unity to diversity. It's through the patterns of excitation of one thing. So what's an excitation of a field of consciousness? <laughs> Um, in a physical metaphor, an excitation is analogous to a vibration. So if a guitar string vibrates, it's being excited. Uh, technically, I use the term excitation in exactly the same sense that it's used in quantum field uh, theory. Um, so um, a radio wave is an ex excitation of an electromagnetic field, for instance, or to, be, to make it more accessible, a wave in the ocean in a, is an excitation of the ocean. It's a certain pattern of... Um, movement in a metaphorical way of the underlying thing that exists. Um, and how are you related to this underlying field? My my personal mind, right? No, I'm just asking about you. Well, no, I, think, I mean, you could you can think of it as your personal mind about it. Um, yeah, I to me, the me is a personal mind. There's nothing more to it. And the body is what those mental processes look like from another perspective, from across the dissociative boundary. But uh, I am a part of nature. Everything in nature is 
either a configuration or a pattern of excitation of that underlying field of simple, raw uh, subjectivity, which in all likelihood doesn't have any higher level mental functions. So in that sense, uh, I agree entirely with you when you say individual, individual minds, the, um, the minds of animals, they have evolved over what, three and a half, four billion years of evolution on this planet, and they have become more and more complex. I agree with that, but that is the dissociated part of that, that underlying field. The field was there from the get-go, because in my view, that is the one ontological primitive. It's the thing that is there before anything else happens. So what, okay, so here's a different question. I don't understand the way that you're using the word dissociated. So maybe you can say something like, about that as well. So are you thinking that there's one big mind that's the phenomenal consciousness? Or are you thinking that this is a consciousness that just kind of, um, I don't know, floats free? Um, it, it, well, to float free means that it exists in some kind of objective context outside of itself, which I deny. So it doesn't float, it is what exists. Um, if you want to imagine it in a technical sense, um, today we have 17 different uh, uh, quantum fields in quantum field theory. Uh, everybody's trying to find the unification theory that brings it all down to one. So you can say that in my view, uh, that one field is this field of subjectivity. That, that is the categorical basis, the essential nature of that field. It is raw awareness, raw subjectivity. Uh, dissociation. Um, I use dissociation in exactly the, the technical sense uh, used in, in psychiatry. We have known of dissociation since mid 19th century or so, but, or so, but only in the last 10 years has our understanding of it grown sig really significantly very fast with the advent of neuroimaging. So dissociation is an empirically established phenomenon in which what is originally one integrated mind seemingly partitions itself or breaks itself down into different centers of awareness, different centers of phenomenal experience, um, which contain different contents, different memories, different dispositions. Um, and sometimes they are aware of one another, sometimes they are not. For a long time, we questioned whether this really existed or people were pretending that this was going on to get attention from a doctor uh, but now with studies like the study of uh, Yolanda Schlumpf and her team in 2014 here in the Netherlands, we know that we can even diagnose dissociation through neuroimaging. Um, the images can be distinguished from brain scans of uh, actors pretending to be dissociated, pretending to themselves uh, to be dissociated. And there is a famous study in Germany 2015 in which a woman suffering from dissociative identity disorder uh, was instrumented with an EEG cap, and uh, when one of the alters or the you know, subsets of that mind is technically called an alter, when one of the alters that claimed to be blind uh, had executive control, uh, the brain activity in the woman's visual cortex at the back of the head would uh, just disappear, although her eyes were open. That's not something you can you know, pretend. Um, and when a sighted alter was in control, brain activity would return to the visual cortex. So we know empirically that uh, dissociation happens. It does exactly what idealism needs it to do in order for it to have explanatory power under idealism. And it is literally blinding, literally blinding. 
Um, so for me, that's the way to account for how I, as a dissociated alter of one field of phenomenality that spans the universe, that's why I don't know what's going on in the galaxy of Andromeda or what's going on in the thoughts of people watching this video right now. Uh, it's accounted for in terms of dissociation. Now, let me rush and concede that we do not have a complete, unambiguous, uh, uh, um, conceptual account of exactly what is entailed by dissociation. We can talk about, you know, cognitive associations and the lack thereof, inferential isolation. There, graph theory can be used to do that. I have used it myself, but I concede it's not a complete account. However, it doesn't matter because whether we have that conceptual account or not, um, the nature shows that this stuff happens and and does exactly what we need it to do, um, and therefore it could happen at different levels as well. So my contention is that living beings are dissociated alters of this simple, uh, uh, spatially unbound field of subjectivity, and that biology metabolism is simply what alters look like when observed from across a dissociative boundary. Okay, so um, when you say what they look like when observed across a boundary, so you're thinking that the the undifferentiated field actually has differentiation and there are there are boundaries within the field. Um, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand what you think is the relationship between you and the field. I still I'm. Sorry, okay. I didn't get what you just said. Okay, I so that. I think um, at a different level in the hierarchy of nature, I am a dissociated alter of this underlying field. And that's why I seem to have a separate private inner life of my own. And the, the underlying process is dissociation, which is a process we know happens in mind space. It happens to people. So the, the, the inference or the theoretical hypothesis is that it happens at the level above people as well. It happens at, at the level of the universe. Now, every phenomenon in nature has an image. It may not be a complete image. It may not tell everything there is to know about the phenomenon it's an image of, uh, but it certainly correlates with the phenomenon because it's what the phenomenon looks like from a perspective. So uh, combustion sometimes looks like, look like what we call flames, sometimes not, sometimes Combustion does not have this image. Uh, alcohol combustion sometimes has no flames. Um, so um, what does dissociation look like when observed from the outside? And my hypothesis is metabolism. It's biology. Biology is what dissociation looks like when observed from the outside. In other words, from outside its respective dissociative boundary. And it is the process that creates boundaries within the cognitive space of this fundamental field of subjectivity. The process that creates the boundaries, the separation from inside, outside, here and there, me and, and someone else, uh, is a dissociative process. Okay, so I'm still, <laughs> I still can't understand this, sorry. Okay, um, I have so, all the time so, in the world. <laughs> so there's, there's a, there's a, there's an underlying field, and then there's um, what? Um, so, within that field, you have a differentiation of regions or something like that. And there's yeah. a separation between the regions. 
and yet somehow or other information passes across these boundaries within the field. Something yeah, across like the dissociative that. boundary, yeah. So the dissociative boundaries are real boundaries in the, in the, um, real in what the would otherwise be an undifferentiated field. So it's not really undifferentiated. Uh, even if there were no dissociation, there would still be many different patterns of excitation of the field, just as there are different notes a guitar string can play or different dances or choreographies a dancer can dance. So there can be infinite patterns of excitation, um, which is a form of differentiation. It's not like the field is uniform um, across its entire cognitive space, but dissociation is more than a differentiation. It creates a cognitive boundary. It creates inferential isolation. It makes it impossible for me to cognitively associate a thought I have with knowledge about what's going on in the galaxy of Andromeda. And that's the point. Okay. So does it so so does it have fundamental temporal properties? I mean, is 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 time a fundamental property of the field and? Are we to think of the field in spatial terms, given the talk about boundaries? And yeah, you went, uh, you went fairly quickly to the interesting questions. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with this. Um, without implicitly, at least, presupposing space-time as givens, it's impossible for us to open our mouths and say something. It's only possible for us to write mathematical equations. Um, so if I am to open my mouth and try to explain and help people visualize what I mean, I am implicitly presupposing space-time as a fundamental sort of uh, scaffolding uh, of nature. Um, and I acknowledge that um, I do this, but it's not what I actually think. It's just a, lim a limitation of communication. I cannot communicate uh, without using spatial-temporal metaphors, like patterns of excitation like imagining this, this uh, underlying field of subjectivity as empty space, which is what I often invite people to, to think of it as, as empty space. Mind is just empty space. When it's excited, then that empty space gets filled with something phenomenal that is recognizable. Um, but I am with Kant and Schopenhauer and some parts of modern neuroscience and modern uh, loop quantum gravity theorists and even the blocked universe guys, you know, coming from Einstein's uh, um, uh, general relativity theory, that um, neither space and time are actually fundamental. They are, they are categories of perception. They are the dimensions of the dashboard of perceptual instruments and cognitive apparatus that evolution has equipped uh, us with uh, in order to make sense of what is beyond us so we can survive. The problem is, in an interview, uh, it's nearly impossible to be entirely consistent with that position because that would preclude me from trying to help people visualize anything I'm saying. We would have to go down to mathematics alone, and that is not progressive in a, in a, in a debate like this. Um... It's not clear though that this so 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 what you're so you're thinking that there's this phenomenal field um, that doesn't have a temporal dimension, right? Not fundamentally. That, 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 that's that's what you're saying. So yeah. is it um, so are we to think of it as 
a single unchanging distribution, right? Because we because yeah. we have no time, we have no causation. So I'm assuming that this is a kind of that that's the picture. There's there really there's no change. I, I, I sympathize with the difficulty. I have faced it myself and I've talked to many people who face it. Um, look, it's not only me saying that uh, space-time is not fundamental. We have a whole drove of physicists today doing loop quantum gravity and saying that at least time is not fundamental. Mm -hmm. um, we have people in neuroscience saying that you know, time is extremely relative and arguably the relativity of space-time is a direct implication of Einstein's uh, general relativity theory and the blocked universe idea. So it's not only me, but it's me too. So I would take the responsibility for that as if it were only me uh, saying it. Um, one way to try to visualize the structure of existence without immediately appealing to space-time metaphors or space-time extension is to think of that structure as the structure in a database it's an associative structure. The records in a database are associated with each other according to some criterion. For instance, a person has a certain date of birth, which is associated with somebody else who happens to have the same date of birth, or somebody whose mother has that same date of birth, which links to a place which associates with somebody else who lives in that place. Now, these associative links in a database do not need spatial temporal extension uh, to be spoken of. There is an associative structure there uh, that is semantic in nature. It's cognitive in nature. It has to do with how meanings lead to other meanings. Um, and the spatial temporal extension is an implementation of the database, for instance, in circuit patterns, which have spatial temporal extension. Um, but that, that's the way to try to visualize it without betraying the notion that space-time is not fundamental. Think of it as an associative cognitive structure. It has structure, even, and that structure does not, in principle, require spatial temporal extension because it's a, it's a structure given by meaning associations. We can visualize it with extension. We can implement it by means of extension, but there is a sense in which the structure itself, in and of itself, does not need uh, extension. That's the way to think about what's really going on. Okay, so so I thought um, for quite a while that it might be that um, if you think about reality generally, that parts of it aren't temporal, but probably all the parts of it are causal. That's not quite the idea that you've got because you've got a different kind of um, link, not a causal link, but an associative link of some kind. So I'm not unhappy with that. I think I understand that part of the picture. I, I'll confess something. I am, and I know it's a weakness, but I'm pretty much married to causality. I, I have a, a lot of difficulty thinking of things in non-causal terms. But if you put me against a wall and put a gun in my face and ask me, Bernardo, at the very from most foundational level of nature is causality fundamental, then I would say no. I would say causality is an epistemic account of associations that are out there beyond our personal minds. Um, there is a metaphor, I forgot who 
use this metaphor. It's not mine, so I shouldn't take credit for it. But the metaphor is the following. Imagine that you're sitting on one side of a fence and um, it's a it's a solid fence, you know, planks of wood, one next to each other, and you can't see the other side, except for a tiny little slit between two planks. And through that slit, you can see what's happening on the other side. And a cat walks by on the other side. And you first see the cat's head, then you see the cat's body, then you see the cat's tail. And the tail always follows the head. First the head comes, and then shortly afterwards, that comes the tail. If you didn't know better, you would say the head causes the tail. It happens every time you see a head, shortly afterwards, boop, there comes the tail. It's a direct causation. But if you know what's going on beyond the limitations of this lit, you would say, well, causality is an epistemic model we make given our cognitive limitations. What's going on in reality is that there is just a cat. There is a pattern that exists all at once. And it's our cognitive limitation that limitations that lead to the notion of causality. So that's what I would say if a gun is put to my head. But I'm not consistent with this view in my normal talking. I talk about causality all the time. All right. So, I mean, that that little story is nice because the cats never walk backwards or um, do somersaults or anything in front <laughs> of the slit. I mean, in reality, that's an, an inference you'd be protected from making, right? Well, nature obviously has some patterns and regularities mm -hmm. that are predictable and fairly reliable, right? We built the edifice of technology based on our ability to predict with high reliability what nature will do. So yes, the, the, cat, the, the cat doesn't walk backwards is a model for what nature does as opposed to what nature doesn't do. There are things that nature doesn't do. Objects, doesn't fall, objects don't fall upwards. Um, so that's the metaphor for the cat that only yeah. walks yeah. forward. Hmm. Oh, this uh, this is going more friendly than I. So, I so, so I wanted to ask you some questions about um, agency uh, and where that fits into the picture, because it seems it's got to come in at a fairly high level. Um, there's a there's a lot of, I mean, the, the the ordinary way that I think about think about myself and about other creatures is that we're embodied and our sense of agency is very sort of fundamental to us. But you've got no causation at the lower levels um, and, you know, our ability to cause things is sort of fundamental to our sense of agency. So it turns out that we're... Um, in a kind of fairly deep sense, not very fundamental beings, right? As, as individual beings, no, we are not fundamental at all. I would even question whether there is any strong sense in which we actually exist uh, as individual beings. Um, I think the, the case to say that we are individual entities is stronger for living beings than it is for non-living objects. Uh, there is no case for saying that there is an ontological distinction between objects in nature. The boundary across inanimate objects is purely nominal. It's epistemic. It's done on the basis of convenience. There is nothing ontic up there that could substantiate separating the river from the ocean. Um, but for our own individual minds, there is an ontic basis. If a photon hits the wall, I don't re register anything. But if a photon hits my retina, I do see something. 
if you prick my skin with a needle, I feel something. If you prick my chair, I don't. Um, and by doing this kind of silly experimentation, you can see where the boundaries of your individual being lie. Uh, but I would then rush and say, yes, so there is an there is an ontic story to be told. It's better than the separation between inanimate objects. But ultimately, if we are just dissociative processes, then our reality has the same status as the reality of the multiple personalities of a patient with dissociative identity disorder. There is a sense in which they are real because they are experienced as such, but there is another strong sense in which they're not real at all. It, it's one person doing all that. It's always that person. And in that sense, I don't think we are ultimately uh, real. I don't know whether that's what you meant. Um, yeah, that's that's more or less where we were where I was going to. So I do think that we sort of come at this from very different perspectives, and the difference in the perspectives is reflected in kind of different approaches to, for example, the interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, because there are some people who think that really there's a kind of requirement, decoherence. You better be able to get back um, the, the common sense world, material world that we live in. Uh, and that kind of approach to quantum mechanics strikes me as much more plausible than the kind of ideal, unsurprisingly, than the idealistic interpretations of quantum mechanics. I, um, I can comment on that. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. So this is, and, and this is not a criticism of you any more than it is a criticism of any educated person who, who concludes the same thing. Um, decoherence is not an interpretation. Decoherence sure. is a operational device that's very useful in practice for daily laboratory experiments, um, but it, it, it doesn't account at all for the measurement problem. Um, uh, Zurek, one of the fathers of decoherence, is on record just stating that explicitly. explicitly. Eric Yost uh, states that explicitly, the fathers of decoherence. But if you understand decoherence, you, you, you understand this. The idea of decoherence is the following. A system in a quantum superposition has information associated with the superposition. Um, and as long as that system is isolated from the classical environment that's not in a superposition, uh, that information is discernible. But if that small system in a superposition interacts in any way with the classical environment, then the information in the superposition, looking for a metaphor that is understandable, but um, also fair to what's actually going on, it's as if the, the information of the superposition would leak out and be diluted in the environment. So nothing actually is happening with it. It didn't disappear. There is no collapse. There is only an appearance of collapse because the, the information in the superposition is now so diluted in the much larger macro environment that is already classic that it's not discernible anymore. So that's the operational advantage of decoherence. But of course, it doesn't explain how the environment became classical in the first place which it needs to be if decoherence is to have any operational validity, any, any explanatory power. So in fact, decoherence is not an interpretation. It, it's not an account for the measurement problem at all. It's a very useful uh, operational uh, tool. But if you ask me what is my favorite interpretation, um, 
I would say uh, Carlo Rovelli's uh, relational quantum mechanics has now such a degree of empirical grounding and the formulation of it is such that it's even difficult to call it an interpretation. It's more like an acknowledgement of the necessary implications of quantum theory, um, an acknowledgement now that has very direct uh, empirical substantiation. That paper by Proietti in 2019 is a direct substantiation of Rovelli's relational quantum mechanics. So I, I don't endorse Rovelli's uh, metaphysics as published in this year's book, uh, Helgoland, um, I, the, the idea that ultimately there is nothing and he appeals to Nagarjuna and Buddhism. I, I don't go down that path that goes too far for me. I'm still a sort of logical Western mind. You know, there is only so far I can go in spiritual abstraction. Uh, but um, as far as the conclusion that physical entities are relational, in other words, they don't have standalone existence. They are not absolutes. They are images that arise from measurement. They are what you see upon a measurement and observation. But what you see is an image of the thing that is being measured. It's not the thing as it is in itself. It's a representation thereof. In the same way that um, if you're in an airplane and you look at your instrument panel, you have measurements of air pressure and air humidity, wind direction. Um, but those measurements are not the storm outside. They are an accurate representation thereof and relative to the storm. If you don't measure anything, then you see nothing in your dashboard of instruments. And, and the conclusion of Ravella's interpretation is that that's exactly what the physical world is. It's uh, what appears on the dashboard of measurement dials that we call the screen of perception given to us by evolution to allow us to survive uh, in a competitive environment. Um, the physical world is not the thing in itself. It's a representation thereof. It doesn't have standalone reality. And that's the reason why it's relative. And to me, it means directly, a direct implication that therefore there is another underlying layer of reality that does have standalone existence. Something surely exists. It's not like it's turtles all the way down, relations all the way down, you know. Um, it, it's like saying that all there is is movement, but there is nothing that moves. It, it, there is no logical sense to this statement. So I think there is something that moves. It's just by definition then non-physical because the physical is by definition, the image you get of it upon measurement, it's not the thing as it is in itself prior to measurement. Did I make any sense or did I, did I go? Yeah, yeah. I certainly wouldn't want to go down Ravelli's route, but I don't want to go down your route either. It seems to me that you kind of, where we start is where we have to end up with, you know, a material world, experimentalists doing experiments with um, material objects. Uh, and you can't end up cutting off the branch that you were sitting on when you started. So, um, you know, the, that, that's, the, that's the way that I'm inclined to, to say I, it. Look, I would much prefer things to be this way, and, and idealism would still apply perfectly because there would still be objective, from our point of view, objective mental processes out there beyond our individual or dissociated minds, which would appear to us like solid tables and chairs, and even without a measurement problem that would still hold, and I would much prefer things to be this way. The problem 
is the bloody experiments there. Um, you know, we started a series of experiments in the late 70s. I was a child um, and the results were clear, but of course the implication is physical properties have no standalone existence. They only exist upon measurement. They are the result of measurement and nobody's comfortable with that. We want to find out what the world is in and of itself. So people pointed out all kinds of possible loopholes, which over time became more and more ludicrous, like conspiracy theories about elementary particles conspiring with measurement instruments to create certain correlations, absurd stuff. But even that absurd stuff, even those hypothetical loopholes have been closed in the course of now over 40 years. And depending on who you talk to, you know, the jury came with the verdict in 2007 or 2010 or 2015 or 2018, but certainly not after 2018. Um, it's very clear physical properties do not have standalone existence. The world as it is in itself either is non-physical or, and that's the only other option on the table, that's Sean Carroll's uh, favorite option, there are countless gazillions of physically real universes popping out of nothing every infinitesimal fraction of a second for no reason for which we have absolutely zero empirical evidence. Now, if you believe in that, what do you not believe? <laughs> um, so for me, it's much more reasonable to just bite the bullet and say, okay, physicality is an appearance, it's an image. Um, even when we observe the world through instrumentation, we still have to perceive the output of instrumentation. Um, what is really going on isn't physical. What's really going on is of the same ontological category as our own mentation. It doesn't mean that it's qualitatively like our own mentation. It is, it is of the same kind, of the same ontological basis as our own mentation. Um, and there are physicists who are very close to biting that bullet or have bitten that bullet. I mean, Henry Stapp is on record have be, having bitten that bullet decades ago, but there are no new up and coming stars like Marcus Miller from the Austrian Academy of Sciences. He's not ready yet to make metaphysical pronouncements, but he basically says that physics is the study of our expectations about what the world is. It's our best guess about what the world is. It is not about what the world is in and of itself. Um, there is that Russian guy who created inflationary cosmology. And what was Andre? Linda. Andre Linda. Yeah, yeah. In 98, he's on record saying physics is a science of perception. Uh, we know that in the beginning, but then we get carried out in our, in our equations. And we forget that uh, we are not studying the world as it is in itself. We are studying our perceptions uh, of the world, what appears on the screen of perception, uh, whether it's mediated or not by instrumentation. Um, and like you, I'm not too comfortable with that because of the, the way I was educated. You know, I was working at CERN when I was 22 years old. So I sort of breathed certain ideas about what the world should be like since very early on. But it, it is not a choice, you know, 40 years of experiments, you can't just pretend that it's not saying anything. So, so it isn't just the experiments though, because you have to interpret them and then you have to be confident that you're not missing something. And when you think about, okay, so what, we're, what we would be being asked to believe if we went with Ravelli, I think that it's much more plausible that we're missing something than that he's right. But that's why it took 40 years, because 
everybody has but thought like you are long. thinking. <laughs> and we have been closing. Yeah, we may have closed off some interpretations. I mean, you know, some understandings, but we clearly haven't closed off all of them. We haven't yeah. thought of all of them yet. So it, it, I think it, it, that it, my money is going to be on you should be you should be agnostic about what the right answer is here. You should be quite confident that Ravelli is not getting it right. Okay, let, it's not only Ravelli, by the way. He was just the first. Yeah, no, no, but I'm using so him as an example. Um, okay, let's. I, I'll pretend that I haven't followed this story uh, over the years, and and that that I don't know that you know incredibly implausible op loopholes have been closed. Yeah. If you go this far and you say, well, we have to remain agnostic, even about an experiment that has been confirmed and reconfirmed dozens of times by dozens of different groups over four decades. If you go that far, then you have to suspend your belief in anything that science says. Then no, you have no, to be agnostic about agnostic everything. About then you don't know anything. Experiments. I was being agnostic about having found the right theory. No, the experiments are pretty clear. I, I can describe the experiment if you want. I don't know whether it's useful, Nathan, you let me know. But the, it, it's very difficult to interpret the experiment in any other way. Um, but, but if you say, in principle, we should remain agnostic, I think that then applies to the rest of science as well. And then I just throw my hands up and say, OK, then, then I don't know anything. Yeah, so I don't think so. Um, but... Uh, like, you know, so so there have been times in the past where um, people have sort of wallowed in a, a sea of conflicting theories because nobody was able to hit on the right answer. And then we hit on the right answer, you know, from the history of from the history of thought. Um, this is not an unfamiliar thing. So I don't see why they, you know, it's not going to be open as an option that we just haven't yet figured out how to interpret the various results of all the experiments we've got. I mean, the experiments have been designed to knock out certain hypotheses. That doesn't mean that all the hypotheses that we haven't thought of yet have been knocked out. I, I agree. Oh, I think that's the key. What you said at, at the very last moment, and uh, we cannot discard what we haven't thought of yet. I'm completely with you there. But the power of the experiment is what it does refute. It's not necessarily the final conclusion of what it says. And I agree with you in the history of science, we have interpreted things in different ways over time. Like Newton thought of gravity as an invisible force acting at a, di at a distance. It took the French 50 years to stop laughing and ultimately they were proven right. There is no such a force. There is a torsion of space time, which is sort of an equally abstract theoretical thing. But uh, in the history of science, although we have interpreted the conclusion differently, there were things that experiments have refuted consistently and, and there, there was no margin for reinterpreting that things are refuted you may not have the answer but you, you know that certain things are not the answer and and the strength of this series of experiments is that it refutes physical realism so it's not like we know exactly what nature is but we know now what it's not either physical realism is false or this is one in countless parallel universes popping up every infinitesimal fraction of a second for which we have zero empirical evidence. That's the state of play. And this is acknowledged by certain people, like Sean Carroll goes out and says, well, no, nope, let's bite the bullet. It is countless physical universes for which we have precisely zero empirical evidence. I'm not prepared to go that far because in my mind, if I believe that, then what do I not bloody believe? In the absence of evidence, I believe anything. Right. And so, so I'm not going to 
um, believe the theory that you're attributing to Carol, right? So, um, but I'm going to, there's going to be a certain amount of credence that goes to there are more options than you've thought of yet. I mean, that's the... Absolutely agree. But certain options that are critical for the physicalist worldview are either refuted or we are in the multiverse fairy tale, which for all I know, you know, for all I know, it may be true. You know, it may be true. I just feel that if I go with that, then I go with the flying spaghetti monster, you know, because it's bound to exist in some parallel universe. <laughs> so uh, to me, it's like it's not productive to entertain that hypothesis, even if it turns out to be true. It's, it's epistemically a black hole. So maybe at this point, um, I think if we move to some audience questions for a little bit, because pe people have got some thoughts that they'd like to hear your takes on. Um, but the, the first question, I think, to kick us off would just be, you know, how how do you both see the relationship between sort of empirical um, empirical facts, I suppose, or or empirical information and like metaphysical theory? Because I think something I, I really struggle with when I li listen to you both talk, I mean, maybe there's a kind of inference to the best explanation thing, but it seems like any metaphysical theory is going to be underdetermined by the empirical facts, you know, like at, at least for everything I know about science, it seems... You know, it could be consistent with Thomism. It could be consistent with Marxist dialectical materialism or something. You know, like I, I don't really see how I could, how I could distinguish between these theories. Just pure, you know, it's like it's not like the the empirical facts directly entail any of them. I mean, how how do you guys both think about these things? Well, my general story about theory selection is um, you. There's this kind of trade-off between. Um, keeping your commitments minimal and explaining as much as possible. And I want to use that um, when I'm evaluating any theories like idealism versus physicalism. That's how I want to do it. Uh, so that's my story. It's very simple. I, I agree with that. Metaphysical theories are not scientific theories in the sense that they don't make predictions about behavior. They are inferences about what nature is as opposed to how it behaves. So you cannot directly confirm or refute them through experiments, but experiments do narrow the field. Uh, experiments may contradict some basic assumptions of certain metaphysical hypotheses. I would say that uh, foundations of physics contradict the basic assumptions of mainstream physicalism because it's entirely dependent on the notion that physical entities have standalone existence that turns out not to be true or to be true in an extraordinarily inf inflationary way, like the multiverse. Uh, hypothesis. So I think an empirical results can and, and should always inform philosophers, because if you put forward a metaphysical hypothesis that contradict, conf contradicts confirmed experimental results, then you have done something wrong. It's just as simple as that. But um, of course, you cannot uh, find the ultimate unquestionable answer through experimentation um, because there will always be some more or less inflationary hypothesis that can accommodate the facts. Um, you know, I, um, I cannot refute the possibility that the flying spaghetti monster exists. It's not logically incoherent. It may not even be physically uh, uh, inconsistent. Uh, but the question is, should I entertain is that it, it, the hypothesis at all? Is it productive? Is, is it useful to entertain it? I would say no, because it's incredibly inflationary. And I think we should stick to the hypothesis that makes the least 
postulates that requires the least credulity uh, and and even if that may not ultimately correspond to reality because Occam's razor is not etched in stone in nature. I agree with that. But if we ignore that, we open the gate to all kinds of nonsense that uh, would just destroy our culture and, and make the debate impossible. Right. So I'm going to agree with the last bit of what you're saying there. Right. You shouldn't you shouldn't believe in more than you've got decent reason to believe in, and you just don't have decent reason to believe in the flying spaghetti monsters. So you shouldn't. So um, our first audience question then um, is to you, Bernardo, it says, what do you mean about nature being spontaneous? It seems incredibly dry and rule following. If it was spontaneous, why could we make such precise predictions? No, it's precisely because it's spontaneous and it doesn't think about things <laughs> in order to produce a behavior. Um, think about your own mental state. Um, when you have a, a spontaneous reaction, it means that you didn't deliberate. Technically speaking, you didn't use your ability to metacognize, to think about your own thoughts, to weigh your own emotions, to consider and reflect, to introspect explicitly. These are all the things that are the opposite of spontaneity. Spontaneity in mental space, it's equivalent to instinct. Um, animals they always react very quickly to, to environmental uh, uh, challenges uh, because instinct provides them with one and only one course of action at any given time. So instinct is highly predictable. Uh, th there are people who have empirically determined from what distance you have to be to the alligator for the alligator to decide to try to take a bite <laughs> from you. So it, it's very predictive in the, uh, precisely because it's so spontaneous. It, it doesn't use higher level mental functions, doesn't use reflection, doesn't use metacognition. And our observations of the behavior of nature are such that nature behaves in a seemingly very, very predictive way, at, at least when it comes to the law of large numbers. I mean, at a microscopic quantum scale, nature's behavior is not predictive at all. But it's very meaningful that when you build statistics, then it is very predictable. We cannot ignore that fact. I mean, our entire technology is built on the predictability we have of nature's behavior. And to me, that suggests that if nature at its bottom level is a form of mind, a field of subjectivity, then that field operates in very simple terms, instinctive terms, and always reacts very spontaneously it does what it does because it is what it is it it, it doesn't deliberate uh, it doesn't introspect and think about things i don't think it has that capacity i think we have evolved that capacity at great cost over three and a half or four billion years of evolution on this planet it has cost a lot of energy time blood sweat and tears it has been um, a bloodbath <laughs> to, to get a species to develop these kinds of higher level mental functions. So I think obviously these higher level mental functions are not there from the beginning. Otherwise, amoeba would be able to philosophize and they, so they don't seem <laughs> to be able to philosophize. So that's the sense in which I think that um, nature is spontaneous, instinctive metaphorically, if you prefer that word. Uh, so the next question is for both of you from Joe Schmidt, Majesty of Reason. Um, and he says, what role should Morian arguments play in these sorts of debates about idealism? So arguments of the sort, you know, like, you know, I, I know I have two hands and you can kind of, 
you know, modus tollens or modus ponens. If, if, there, if there's a kind of if-then, you know, conditional that you're arguing over, someone might take one end of it and argue one way or the other. Perhaps that's what he's getting at. Um, do you want to go first on this one, Graham? Okay, so <laughs> Moore's arguments of curiosity, really. I mean, it's, it's very hard to see it as anything other than kind of question begging in the context of the dispute, right? So, um, so I mean, once you say that, it doesn't seem like it's going to have much of a role to play. I don't know what Bernardo thinks. I have nothing to add to this. I, I suppose it's quite, you know, it's quite similar. You know, the famous sort of, yeah, don't worry about that. The, the famous sort of anecdote about, um, you know, when Bar obviously your idealism is different, but when Barclay, you know, had put forward his version of idealism, I forget who it was, um, you know, who stomped Dr. the rock. Johnson. And says, Samuel yeah, Johnson. Says, yeah. I refute it thus sort of thing. <laughs> and that seems like a similar sort of thing to, you know. Well, uh, you know, to, to echo what Professor uh, uh, um, Opijesu said, um, Samuel Johnson is an appeal to experience. The solidity, the concreteness of the stone he kicked is a quality. So uh, uh, crucially, um, in, in thinking that he refuted Barclay's subjective idealism, with which I do not agree, by the way, but that refutation was the wrong one. There are better refutations of Barclay's uh, subjective idealism. I think Samuel Johnson just sort of made a point for Barclay. You know, if I kick this stone, it hurts. Exactly. Hurting is an experience. Solidity, concreteness are experiences. The stone of physicalism is entirely abstract. It's not supposed to have any intrinsic quality whatsoever. It's only supposed to modulate the qualities your brain, brain produces inside your head. But the stone as it is in itself is not concrete, not solid, doesn't cause, is not painful, nothing. Uh, so the next question then is a question for Dr. Bernardo. Do you equate your fundamental field of consciousness with, and I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to pronounce this, but it means Brahman apparently. <laughs> I would say I do not know, because to give an answer to this would presume a level of understanding of Hindu philosophy that I don't have. Um, and I'm pretty sure that this whatever answer I give could be used against me in a court of law before before I even realize. So the honest answer is I do not know. I have read the Vedas. I'm not a complete ignorant in Hindu philosophy. It's just to the life delightful and tempting to not deserve a read but um it's also very complex very subtle very nuanced there are many different interpretations um, interpretations that go back to over a thousand years so I, I don't feel qualified to give it an answer i suspect that it is the same thing Th that's as far as i will go so uh, a question from deepak for both guests would the construction of a human level AI change your opinions on this debate? Um, and the second question for you, Graham, afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't see why the construction of a human level AI would make me change my opinion. So maybe I should, should leave it to Bernardo to give his I answer. Have I assume the answer is he's not going to make any difference to him either. Yeah, it's the same answer. It would make no difference for me. I have no doubt we will achieve AGI, artificial general intelligence, but it will not be conscious in and of itself. In other words, 
we will create artificial intelligence, but not artificially dissociated consciousness. I think eventually we will achieve artificial means to induce dissociation in this universal field and produce a privately conscious entity, but the name we will give to it is abiogenesis. It's the creation of life from non-life. I think empirically, what nature is telling us is that dissociated private inner lives look like metabolism because every instance of it that we know has that underlying feature, even, even though living entities are morphologically and physiologically completely different from one another, they all share that substrate we call metabolism, you know, uh, transcription, protein folding, mitosis, uh, you know, all that good stuff, ATP burning. Um, nature is telling us that this is what dissociation looks like. I don't think it will look like silicon chips. And this question is close to me because, you know, uh, I'm also a, a computer scientist and had some specialization in AI. Um, it will not change my views in a bit. And I, and I grant immediately AGI will happen, but that has nothing to do with artificial consciousness. I wonder, I mean, because you both broadly signed up to the, you know, the same sort of trying to maximize the explanation and minimize the commitments. So, so I mean, in, in a sense, that's an answer of what would change your mind on this is going to be, well, some story that's different from the one I hold that maximizes explanation and minimizes commitments. Yeah. But do, do either of you have any ideas about, you know, some potential candidate, you know, empirical fact maybe that you could find out or experience that you might, is there something that would push you away? You know, Graham, if you had a crazy psychedelic experience of, you know, this dissociation or something, would mm -hmm. that push you? And is there something so, similar for you, Bernardo? Yeah. So, so I don't think so. Um, not that I'm likely to have experiences like that, I think. But, um, uh, I don't think that that would make any difference. Um, and I, but I don't see how it could kind of, how anything like that could really cut any ice one way or the other. And it's a kind of theoretical disagreement that's not tied to the kind of peculiarities of the um, particular, um, say, sensory experiences that you have. What, what about from your point of view, Bernardo, do you think, you know, other than the theoretical argumentation, is there anything you could find out or, you know, phys physically, whatever, or apparently? From the point of view of parsimony, there is a limiting case. If your reduction base has only one element and the ontological category of that element is the one we are born acquainted with, in, in other words, the only one we know for sure exists, mentation, then you, you can't beat that in terms of parsimony. The only way to beat that is to show that there are reliable empirical observations that are repeatable, uh, which contradict that hypothesis. And therefore, because of explanatory power, you need to postulate a another categorical um, um, basis for nature that is not mentation. So th that step is, uh, is justified uh, if your explanatory power is not sufficient then you have no alternative but to make an extra inference. But I think idealism, at least analytic idealism, without making that extra ontological inference accounts for everything. So I don't think it can be beaten on parsimony grounds. Now, do I think that that's the ultimate theory? Absolutely not. Um, I think that's the best we can do given our cognitive limitations as a species at this point in, in, in the natural history of this planet. I think we have very good reasons to change our mainstream storyline because we already know better. We can get closer to truth. But 
we are monkeys, you know, we, we, we are, have been walking around for 200, 200,000 years. That's yesterday. And of those 200,000 years, our ability to think symbolically, to think conceptually, to theorize, to, rat, to, to ratiocinate, it is 30,000 years old, maybe 50, but most likely 30,000 years old. That's not yesterday, it's last hour. I mean, we, we are babies. Uh, to imagine that we have evolved enough cognitive capacity to figure out what nature is doing, every salient point about what's going on that may be interesting to us, is preposterous. Uh, uh, we, again, we are just monkeys walking around since yesterday and capable of thinking conceptually since last hour. Um, so we will have a different story. And I think that's the value of the world's religions. Um, we have other mental capacities beyond conceptual reasoning. Um, it has become fashionable to ignore those other mental functions we have, like intuition, empathy, imagination. It has become fashionable to ignore them as unreliable, even though history tells us that uh, logical reasoning is also highly unreliable. Um, but it is possible that even at, it's conceivable at least, that even at this junction um, in the natural history of our planet, although we are so cognitively limited, maybe it is possible to infer a little more than we can through conceptual reasoning alone. Maybe we are rooted in nature, we are natural beings, and that intuitive roots produce some intuitions, which of course we make a mess of afterwards, creating all kinds of narratives, but the raw intuition may be suggesting something important that may color our view about what's going on. I think that's the value of the world's religions. I wouldn't dismiss that. I, I dismiss literalism, fundamentalism, uh, but I don't dismiss the intuitive root um, at, at, at the birth of the world's main religions. There is something there. It's statistically impossible to just say it's all gullibility. Now, it has affected 95% of the people across history and across geographies. No, there is something more to that. And it may be interesting to entertain that with some critical awareness, not giving up the intellect, but opening the door a little bit and having a peek at what intuition is saying. I, th I was just, um, something that came to mind as well just then was I think Chris Letherby, who's at an Australian university, has done some research recently on um, psychedelics and he said something yeah. like that it does tend to change people's um, philosophical positions. They tend away from naturalism over time after after a psychedelic experience, which is interesting. I mean, there's... In which know, sense more... are you using the word naturalism? <laughs> well, in, in the, yeah, in the, in the sense that... Uh, Graham, okay, so I call it physicalism. Right? Yeah, physicalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so so hopefully I, I hope to have him on at some point to um, talk talk about his thoughts around that. But uh, another question then, and it, you know, if they, when these ones are, are for Bernardo, if you feel like there's anything you want to comment, Graham, feel free to on the end as well. Um, if we accept we don't have direct access to what reality is, but merely a useful description of it. What motivates the view that it is ultimately mental? It's for me the question. Yeah. Uh, well, the implications are completely different than the implications of uh, physicalism. And that's why it's an important discussion to have. Uh, if reality is mental and we don't have direct access to what mentation is going on outside of us, but to know that it's mental has tremendous, impl tremendous implications. I will list only a couple. I don't want to take too much time and speaking too much. And, Professor Op is not speaking enough, but very quickly, 
uh, it has implications about un our understanding of death. If life is a dissociative process that looks like metabolism, then the end of metabolism is the end of the dissociation. It's not the end of your consciousness, it's a, it's a reintegration of your conscious inner life into a broader cognitive context. Uh, if you want to speak of it as an expansion of consciousness, then I think it's fair. I don't mean by it the new age you know, idea of expand your consciousness, that's not what I mean. But uh, tying up your conscious inner life in a broader cognitive context, there is a sense in which that's literally an expansion of your, of your conscious inner life. So our understanding of death, our relationship with death, changes completely. Our understanding of health is extended because now if metabolism is what our own uh, mental processes look like, including those that we cannot introspect into because our metacognitive awareness only has a certain reach, um, then it means that next to drugs and surgery, uh, physical health benefits can be in principle uh, had through mental avenues, talk therapy, belief. I mean, before modern medicine, which started in the late 19th century, all we had was the placebo effect, uh, which we know today, gazillions of studies have confirmed that it's still an existing effect. It's a very important one. Drug companies hate it because to approve a drug, you have to prove that the drug is more effective than placebo and placebo is very darn effective. So uh, that couches placebo now into a analytic understanding. There is a place for it now. Placebo works because our bodies are the image of our deepest mental inner life. Even those parts of our mental inner life that we cannot metacognitively introspect into or which the ego is dissociated from uh, has implications for the meaning of life. If the physical world now is not the thing in itself, but an image of a deeper layer of reality, then you can regard the physical world as a book to be read, something to be interpreted, something to be thought about, um, something to be understood. Um, there is a extra dimension of depth and meaning that um, is granted uh, to reality if reality is actually mental, physicality being just a representation, our cognitive representation thereof. So it, it gives an extra dimension of semantic meaning to the world in which we are immersed. So the implications are endless, uh, even though you might say, well, what's the point if you can't access it anyway? Well, then there are many points. Is there anything you want to say on? So, so I wanted to ask, I mean, just one of the things that Bernardo said then about um, there not having been anything in medicine that was anything other than placebo effect before the 19th century. That might go a little bit too far. I don't know enough about the history of medicine, but there, um, it's it's not impossible, for example, that there are antibiotics, natural antibiotics that were discovered. Right? So, well, wasn't there something that was found the other year, a compound in garlic that was in a medieval scroll um, in Oxford that they were looking at or something that, that had antibiotic properties um, for MRSA or something? I, think. Well, I, I, I grant think that. I exaggerated unduly. I grant that. Um, Emerson asks a uh, question for Oppie, what's the best argument for physicalism? So um, I think the answer to that is the kind of best argument that you can that you can mount for it. Um, any kind of metaphysical position is going to be one where you say, look, let's set out the, the various competing theories and then weigh up the costs and the benefits of each of the theories, see how they go 
on this trade-off between simplicity and explanation, minimising commitments, maximising explanation. And if things go the way that I think they do, then it will turn out that you have an argument for physicalism that that is does the best job at that. Is it, is it an argument of parsimony? So if sort of right, I mean. Occam's razor is a is a trade-off principle, right? You you try to minimize simplicity and maximize what you get to explain at the same time. So you can think of it as parsimony, but parsimony is only one half of the equation. I'd make yeah. a case that idealism is significantly more parsimonious than physicalism, but maybe I shouldn't open that door again. Right, otherwise, right, well, we forget well, the question. Well, in effect, you've already given some arguments to that effect, but there are kind of questions, right, when you think about every particular um, mental experience, there's an explanation for it, but your explanation is just, it's a kind of, we just point back to the, um, to the underlying phenomenal field and say, somewhere in there, there's a direct explanation for this particular um, mental effect, and you've got a different act of pointing for every mental affect every mental state, every mental process that there is. So there's a great deal of complexity in but the theory because you, because you can't go back to that level and um, pull out any explanatory materials, right? It's completely, you have no access to that level. So that makes it actually not particularly parsimonious theory. But the exact same point can be made about physicalism. You're right. And I wasn't making an argument that um, that, that there isn't lots and lots of fundamental stuff in the physical theory, just as according to me, there's lots and lots of fundamental stuff in the idealist theory. But I do think that the identity theory affords you some um, benefits that you don't get on the identity on the on the idealist view. So I think that it will turn out that the overall that the physicalist theory is marginally simpler but it's that's all it takes it just has to be a little bit better and inference of the best explanation will lead you to tentatively infer to it well identity theory would have that effect if it worked <laughs> but right which it, it does according to me but in in what sense does it work i mean goes back to the discussion we had in the beginning if i say well consciousness is the involuntary wiggling of my left big toe then it's right, not that's not my theory. theory. I'm right. just saying it's right. the same thing. So it's parsimonious because it's the same thing as the wiggling of my left yeah. big toe, but it doesn't right. explain but, anything. It, but but it, but you have to. We're comparing two theories, and we're comparing what their commitments are, and then we're comparing what's explained. Uh, I don't see that the um, the physical theory is explaining less, and you were just granting that it is more parsimonious. So no, what I'm saying like, is that. What I'm saying is that identity theory is just linguistic. It's a linguistic statement. Mm. There is nothing beyond it. It's an arbitrary linguistic statement. Well, consciousness is that. I have a good friend, professor of physics uh, in LA uh, at uh, Chapman University. He calls this the, the Pinocchio theories of consciousness. Consciousness is, is Pinocchio. That's consciousness. I mean, you're not saying anything by just establishing a linguistic identity. We, we feel what consciousness is. It, it doesn't have any meaning for me to say consciousness is the wiggling of my left big toe, because we know that that's not what consciousness is. You can define consciousness linguistically that way, 
but that doesn't explain anything. It's entirely arbitrary. Uh, it would be arbitrary if you wanted to locate consciousness in your toe, but it's not arbitrary to think that um, that conscious processing is going on in your brain. Right? No, but that's, it's that's the not, same. It's not. It's not arbitrary at all. Oh, it's, I mean, there's, there's various kinds of data points that um, that um, support the idea that there's got to be some very close connection between um, experience and neural processing, right? Whereas there isn't. Whereas there isn't for kind of stuff that's happening in your toe. Of course it does, because I, you know something happens in my brain when I experience my left big toe, big toe wiggling. Look, um, the, to appeal to the correlates between patterns of brain activity and conscious experience, it's an appeal to a correlate. If I say that patterns of brain activity are just what conscious experience looks like, I have accounted for those correlations. So this is only an argument for physicalism in so far as you actually beg the question of physicalism and you attribute the conclusion you want to extract in your interpretation of the data. Um, to, to have true explanatory power, one has to be able to deduce at least in principle, specific qualities of experience from specific physical arrangements or properties thereof. And there is no account for that, even in principle. And I can even tell you why. It's because of an internal contradiction of physicalism. We replace reality by a description thereof. We re replace reality with a description thereof. And that description is quantitative. And by construction, it has nothing to do with qualities. And then we try to extract qualities from a quantitative description. It's like trying to pull the territory out of the map. It's never going to work, but we call it a problem. And we promise ourselves that in version two, three or 10 of the map, we will be able to pull the territory out of it. This is just a, a, an unwillingness to acknowledge that the hard problem of consciousness is not a problem to be solved. It's just the explicit articulation of an internal contradiction of physicalist thinking, which is probably the worst uh, metaphysical hypothesis on the table today. It's the, it's playing absurd. So every theory is a description. I didn't see the difference between uh, uh, theories are descriptions. Physicalist um, theories and no, no, no. Idealist theories. So the. I mean, as, as far as that argument went, it didn't make any differentiation between. Oh, it, uh, look, Nathan, is it okay if I, if you, it depends how Graham is for time. That's the only concern I have. Okay, just... So, so we should wind it up pretty soon. Okay. We'll have to wind it up pretty soon. Okay. Okay. Well, um, I don't know if we, it, it feels like an inappropriate place to sort of leave it because there's a bit of, um, but, but, um, maybe we'll just, we'll just have to sort of do that or maybe there could be around two in the future or something who knows we'll see um but yeah i want to say thank you both for coming on and having this conversation it's been really interesting to listen to um firstly bernardo do you want to just say you know where people can find out more about your stuff and what you're doing um if they want to go and check that out after and then graham if you want to say similarly for yourself so uh, you can go to bernardo castrop one word castrop with a k dot uh, com and you can also go to essentiafoundation.org, Essentia with a T, essentiafoundation.org, uh, which is the foundation we are using to try to promote idealism from a strictly analytic, uh, logical, empirical perspective and not from a spiritual uh, perspective. And then do you want to go, Graham? 
Okay, so I'll re recommend something else, not <laughs> nothing to do with me, to do with other people, because this is, I mean, talk, <laughs> philosophy of mind's really not my field. I'm a philosopher of religion. So I recommend going and reading a couple of Peter Godfrey Smith's recent books in um, the philosophy of mind um, to get something that's a more expert development of the kind of position that I'm defending. And is that that's for like a type identity theory that you're recommending that, right? Yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you both. Um, I'm just going to play the closing credits. So if you want to hang around for a minute afterwards, um, that's okay. But if not, that's also all right um, if you've got to go. But thank you everyone for watching. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And if you have the time, I'll see you back tomorrow where I'm talking to uh, Trent Horn, who's a Catholic apologist. Um, so that might be interesting for those who like that sort of thing. So see you around, everyone.